I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Drum Tower. I'm Alice Su, Senior China Correspondent for The Economist based in Taipei. I'm here with my co-host, David Rennie, our Beijing bureau chief. Today, we're looking at how zero COVID turned from a triumph for the Communist Party as they saved Chinese lives into a trap involving immense human and economic risks and a spark for public dissent on the streets. In November, we saw record-breaking numbers of new COVID cases. And yet, we're seeing the government loosen restrictions on COVID and change its messaging on the severity of the Omicron variant. Zero COVID has been Xi Jinping's signature policy. Is it now coming to an end? This week, we're going to take you back to the start of the pandemic in China. We're going to ask, how did China get into zero COVID? And how can China get out of it? This is Drum Tower from The Economist. Hi, Alice. How's your week been? Hi. Um, it has been busy. We are all spending a lot of time writing about the protests and how to make sense of everything that's happening. But, you know, here in Taiwan, we've just had this big moment where the mask mandate has been lifted. So people don't need to wear masks on the streets anymore. And Taiwan is completely open to foreign travelers now. I I do have to say it hasn't immediately made a big impact in the sense that I do still see many people wearing masks on the street. Are you wearing a mask? I wore a mask today because I forgot that the mask mandate was lifted. And then I went to a cafe. Everyone was wearing a mask. And then I opened Twitter and I saw someone write, today we are free, you know, something like that. And then I remembered like, oh, yeah, it's over. Um, So there is this sense that, you know, that was the last um, COVID restriction that was still in place. And now it's like we're moving out. We're past that whole period. But how are things in Beijing? It is completely confused. You're seeing on the one hand, you know, I'm getting text messages from colleagues, friends, worrying that people are getting COVID, which used to be like getting struck by lightning, catching COVID in this country. Now people are worried about neighbors, colleagues getting it, not sure what to do about it. We're seeing those testing booths that were on every street corner, some of them being kind of winched away on cranes. And initially everyone was really happy until they realized that you still need a test result to get into quite a lot of public buildings. And so we've seen like huge lines in freezing weather up to an hour as people try and get a test. And the honest truth is, People don't know whether to be frightened or happy about that because we don't actually know if this is going to turn into a giant exit wave. And I think one of the things that's been really kind of striking to me is seeing foreign headlines. Quite a lot of the reporting sort of draws a very, very simple straight line between, oh, there were very political protests with people in Shanghai saying down with Xi Jinping, and now they've abandoned their big policy. So that's the, the party basically backing down in the face of political protests. And then we see markets 
euphoria around the world that, hooray, China's becoming normal again. I would caution that that is way too simple. I think, for one thing, those political protests were very brave, they were very unusual, but they were very small. And I think the Communist Party is much more worried about the breadth and the diversity of the protests we've seen out there, the kind of the silent majority getting sick of zero COVID, the fact that it's killing the economy, bankrupting local governments. And the market euphoria, if it's based on China becoming normal again, that's a very big bet because the next few months could actually turn into a really painful winter of huge numbers of cases, and we hope not, but could be huge numbers of deaths. Yeah, David, you mentioned that we shouldn't be so quick to draw a direct line between the student protests and the political anti-system protests and the lifting of COVID restrictions. And it's fascinating to me that one of the most extreme examples of protests we saw in recent days was in Guangzhou, where, you know, in contrast to the students on university campuses or the vigil that you attended, we saw police in white hazmat suits with riot shields and protesters throwing glass and debris at them. When I saw that, I thought, okay, wow, this is where things are really getting crazy. But after those protests happened, we then saw that there was a change in COVID policy in Guangzhou. We saw that there was a loosening of restrictions, even though COVID cases were still rising. Maybe the Chinese government has realized the extent of public anger and frustration with the way zero COVID is implemented, and they are making changes to that. Alice, you're absolutely right. Look, the Communist Party is a dictatorship, but it pays incredibly close attention to public opinion, and it also it picks its battles. And so you've seen throughout its history that when workers... Uh, who have nothing to lose, they're kind of smashing things up because they want to go and earn some money. If the party can avoid a head-on confrontation, if it can buy most of them off, maybe find one or two ringleaders and punish them, then it will often take the quiet route of placating angry workers, particularly people like migrant workers who don't have a lot to lose. Another signal, big signal, was sent by a woman called Sun Chunlan, who's been kind of the Darth Vader of zero COVID, that if you saw her turn up in your city, she's a vice premier, if you see Sun Chunlan in your city after a COVID outbreak, it's like, okay, now we're done for because... Lockdown is coming. Big lockdowns are coming. Yeah. Now, she actually said that COVID has got less dangerous and that vaccination is important and that China is facing a new situation and that maybe they're going to tweak the policy. So that, you know, when Darth Vader says that things might be getting a little more cheerful, that is a potential signal. There have been some Chinese media stories about, you know, what is it like to get COVID and it's not so bad. But what were they saying on Xinwen Nianbo on the nightly news? So I think Sun Chunlan is fascinating because it's a, a signal that maybe the messaging is shifting. And, you know, the messaging had been so effective for them for the last, you know, nearly three years. The messaging has been the outside world is full of death, particularly places like America, and China is safe. So yes, it's tough. Yes, it's strict. Yes, you might be locked down right now, but you're safe. You're alive because only 5,000 something people in China have died. A million people have died in America. This totemic number that ordinary Chinese will quote at you. But people are also sick of zero COVID. And so Beijing, where I am, people are a bit scared about getting COVID, but not because they're scared of dying from COVID in the same way, so much as the one thing everyone's worried about is getting sent to one of these pop-up quarantine sites, these fangzang, because they call them quarantine hospitals. But as you know, Alice, they're basically sheds with a lot of bed. And if you look on Chinese social media, they are grim. But have you seen any kind of loosening in Beijing in terms of some people not having to go to those quarantine centers, even though they're close contacts or maybe even if they're infected? 
Yeah, absolutely. But it's not systematic. There hasn't been like a really clear announcement. And it's interesting because the place I'm in, Taiwan, also had a zero COVID policy in the beginning. I came here this spring when Taiwan was pivoting out of zero COVID and moving towards living with the virus. I remember there was one day, you know, we were doing all these QR code scans every time you went to the mall or a restaurant. And then one day it was just canceled. Suddenly you didn't have to scan anything. And then I remember thinking like, oh, my God, if I don't scan anything, then how are they going to trace me? And I guess I was just still in that zero COVID mindset. But the other thing that is important to note is that in Taiwan, also vaccination rates were high and that in Taiwan they had mRNA vaccines. They were using foreign vaccines and that Taiwan has, you know, among the highest rates of ICU bed density in the world. So even though there was all this messaging needed to make sure that the hospitals didn't get overcrowded, Taiwan had an advantage in that they already had a lot more capacity in their healthcare system in the first place. Alice, you've just been describing the new freedoms of Taiwan 2022. But let's remember how we got here. Let's go back to the China of January 2020, when you and I were both working here in Beijing. And right around Chinese New Year, the kind of Christmas and Thanksgiving of the Chinese year all rolled into one. Word spread that something very weird was happening in the central city of Wuhan. And very quickly, it turned out that the authorities in Wuhan and maybe the central government had known that there was this new pneumonia, this new virus that had been actually spreading between people and they had covered it up and allowed some big public events to happen and that now it was out of control. And on the 23rd of January, they locked down uh, the entire province around Wuhan. It's like locking down a country the size of Italy. And I'm sure you remember, I remember the shock. One of our listeners sent in a fantastic question. And we're really enjoying all of the questions we're getting because they're so kind of on point. Rodin say, you know, what about that original mess up at the beginning? Why do we not talk about that more? And I don't know if you agree, Alice, I think that thinking back about the last kind of three years, why do we not talk about was there a cover up? Was it a mistake? Was it lies at the very beginning? I think the truth is that the question we're really asking is, did there have to be a global pandemic? Is it China's fault? That's the question we're asking. Of course, that's the question that makes the Chinese government angrier than almost any other. But I think the honest truth that I've come to the kind of sad conclusion is that even if China had been super transparent, which it definitely wasn't, and had given the whole world another two or three weeks of warning that this thing was coming, if you think back to how badly uh, the American government or in my country, Britain, the government handled it, would another three weeks have changed anything at all? And so I think maybe, you know, China behaved really badly at the beginning, but the rest of the world was so incompetent and so slow that that's not why we have a global pandemic. Yeah. And actually, you know, thinking back, even the recent protests have made me remember in the early days in February 2020, right? There was another outpouring of anger in China about the death of this doctor, Li Wenliang. So Li Wenliang was a doctor in Wuhan, and he had been reprimanded by local authorities because he had been sharing in a chat group early on that you know something was spreading in Wuhan and people should be careful about it. He was punished just for sending those messages. And then the ironic thing is that later on, he caught COVID and he died of it. And I remember just the outpouring of anger that night when he died and how people were saying, we want freedom of speech. You know, this is it. And it really did feel like, oh, this could be a turning point in China. But then I remember how quickly things changed. 
because then the Chinese government kicked into action and they rolled out their response. They locked down Wuhan and they rolled out this whole zero COVID policy to stop the spread. And when they did that, it was effective and it worked. And actually, many Chinese people were happy about it. And it's almost like people just forgot. They forgot about that anger with Li Wenliang because once they saw that the government was doing something and it seemed to be effectively keeping them safe, then they were satisfied. You know, I've never forgotten the first reporting trip I did of the pandemic. It was January the 27th. So I think three, four days after the entire province around Wuhan had been locked down. And I went down to the border of that locked down province to the last village before you enter the lockdown zone and then you'd be quarantined for kind of weeks. And it was a kind of grim, grey, muddy little place. Everyone in the outside world was talking about how terrifying this was. It was a new virus. But when I got to that border village, what the villagers said was that being told to be strict, being told to lock indoors anyone who'd been to Wuhan, being told not to have Chinese New Year was comforting because it felt like they were doing something. And I remember talking to these two old guys. One was a party secretary and one was a villager. One of them said, without me even asking, that the way they were behaving proved why China was better than the West. And he said, let me tell you, the Chinese people, we listen to the government. And the government has told us to, for the safety of the country, we're going to sacrifice our interests. It's not like you Westerners. I just listened back to the tape. And the really embarrassing thing is that I said, No, you know, this, this disease is so serious. I'm sure that people in the West will listen to their governments. So that was not my best prediction of the pandemic. I'll always remember that you know, I went to Wuhan shortly after it opened in, in May 2020. And among the, the many people I met, there was one construction worker um, who told me how he considered himself sort of an awakened person. You know, like he he knew about things like Tiananmen and he, he knew about the party corruption and so on. So when COVID happened in Wuhan, he went out of his way. He took huge risks to go into the emergency hospitals to film videos to, you know, and he was like, I'm gathering all this material so I can tell the world what's happening because I know that China's going to censor us. And I know that once I help the rest of the world see what's happening here with this virus, I have faith that they will do better. But by that time, it was May 2020, you know, he was already seeing that COVID had spread all around the world and it was killing so many people. And Western countries, the ones he had believed in, were failing to protect their citizens. And I, and I just remember he was just kind of confused and disillusioned and disappointed. And he was asking me, you know, do you think that maybe those systems aren't so good after all? Do you think actually our system is better? And how am I supposed to make sense of this? You know, that sentiment that China was really doing better, it's something that Xi Jinping quickly grabbed and took advantage of. In June 2020, he held a huge ceremony in the Great Hall of the People in Beijing, where he awarded medals to people who had been fighting bravely in the fight against the virus. And he exclaimed that China was the only major economy to start growing again. Xi Jinping was quick to declare victory over the virus. In the, in the first few months of COVID, he had already said, you know, we, have, we are triumphant. We have the strategy. In fact, everyone should learn from us what the strategy is to, to deal with COVID. And for the first two years, 2020 and 2021, that strategy was largely successful. 
But things have changed. And that is in part because the virus itself has changed. You know, the Omicron variant emerged and was much more transmissible than the previous variants. And now we see that when Omicron happened, essentially every other country that was living under zero COVID, they pivoted. They realized that they would have to end up living with the virus because there was no way they could keep the virus totally out. But China didn't pivot. China kept using the same strategy from the first two years and, in fact, doubled down on it. And the result is that now in China, it feels more like zero COVID is a trap. And young people are protesting or trying to flee the country. Urban youth unemployment hit nearly 20 percent this year. The economy is really struggling. And so people are just really frustrated and it feels like something needs to change. But the question is how? Yeah. And one of the things that's so strange is that this policy that made so much sense now just looks increasingly weird now that every other country is using the best tools, the best vaccines, the best drugs. There was an image that a scientist gave me that what China has built with all of this high technology and the smartphone apps and stuff is the most up-to-date, ambitious version ever tried of basically a 19th century quarantine policy. And you basically quarantine everyone who's sick and you lock them up indoors because you have no drugs to treat it. And you try and be as disciplined as you can about finding every case and locking them up. So we're doing a 19th century quarantine strategy when you have 21st century drugs. And that's looking increasingly weird. One of the people who I found fantastically useful at explaining just how different China's policy is, is the top epidemiologist at the University of Hong Kong, a guy called Ben Cowling. And I spoke to him in April of 2020. And he said, if China can protect people's health with these tough lockdowns, and then by the end of this year, get a really good vaccine, then China will look extremely smart. But if they don't do that, and other countries open up, then China is going to look odder and odder. It's going to be this giant economy slamming on the brakes every time it finds a small cluster. So that was like month four of the pandemic. And Ben basically just described the last two and a half years perfectly. So I called him up this week uh, to say, here we are in December 2022, numbers soaring in China. They're sticking with the same old policy as ever. How do they get out of this? There are important differences in the concept of zero COVID in China versus the concept of zero COVID in Singapore, Australia and New Zealand. In those latter locations, zero COVID was explicitly used as a strategy to buy time until vaccine coverage reaches a high level. Eventually, the measures for zero COVID will come to an end. But in China, the, the concept's a bit different. President Xi in October, when he addressed the National People's Congress, said that in his view, zero COVID is the way forward for China. It's not only a way to buy time, it's a way to protect people in China against the horrific consequences of getting COVID, potentially being in hospital, maybe getting long COVID, all of which we're aware of in other parts of the world. And so he was almost saying one death from COVID is one too many. And can we talk about vaccinating the old? Because you've done a study in Hong Kong, partly based on the really brutal wave, fifth wave of Omicron that hit Hong Kong at the beginning of 2022. So China officially says that two doses of the Chinese vaccine is a full course particularly among the old, the over 60s, the over 70s, is two doses enough to give them good protection? Right. So in terms of the number of doses that are needed for full protection, we've done a head-to-head -head study in Hong Kong where we have the Pfizer-BioNTech mRNA vaccine, and we also have the CoronaVac inactivated vaccine 
produced by Sinovac, which is one of the most widely used vaccines in the world, actually, and it's the most used vaccine in China. And when we put them head to head and see how they perform in preventing severe COVID and death from COVID, both vaccines work very, very well in younger adults, but in the elderly, in people, in in our analysis above the age of 60 years, what we found is that two doses of the inactivated vaccine only gave a like a moderate to high level of effect, I think 60 to 70% protection against severe COVID. But after a third dose of inactivated vaccine, it went up to the high 90s. Whereas for elderly receiving two doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, they could already get above 90% protection, high 90s. And what we recognize in China is that while a lot of people have had two doses, the proportion of older people who've had two doses is not so high. And the proportion of older people who've had three doses is even a bit lower than that. It may be above 50%, but I wouldn't say it's as high as it could be, considering that they have above 90% vaccination coverage in all age groups uh, over the country as a whole. So that rosy picture of a very high level of the whole population being vaccinated, some of them a year ago, conceals some real concerns. That if you were to open up rapidly now, you could have a lot of old people getting sick and If you agree with that, what's the lesson of Hong Kong's outbreak from the beginning of this year? Around the world, Omicron seemed to be milder. But in Hong Kong, because we had unvaccinated elderly who'd never previously been infected, we didn't have many infections in in the first two years of the pandemic, we had a lot of deaths. So in our population, we had probably between 3 million and 4 million infections and 10,000 deaths. That's about half the population of Hong Kong, right? About half the population infected and about one in a thousand people in Hong Kong died in March and April from COVID in our big Omicron BA2 wave. And I think in China, the the vaccine coverage is higher there than it was in Hong Kong, but the healthcare system is maybe not as strong in parts of the mainland as it is in Hong Kong. And I think there'd be a real struggle in dealing with a surge in cases of severe COVID in unvaccinated older adults. But I have to say that given the overall strategy of, of zero COVID, I'm not convinced that it's vaccination coverage which is holding back in terms of a transition plan. I don't think we should see mRNA vaccines as a magic bullet here because we've shown in our research in Hong Kong that the inactivated vaccines are very good with three doses for the elderly. And I would say maybe now a fourth dose would make a difference as well. I don't think the technology itself is the key. If there's going to be a transition away from zero COVID, I think it may well happen for other reasons. For example, if COVID just becomes too difficult to stop. And at that point, whatever the vaccine coverage is, that will be the the level that it's at. I I don't think there'll be this idea that that after vaccine coverage gets to 100%, then everything can be relaxed. I'm really struck by what Ben said about mRNA vaccines and how they're not a magic bullet, because one of the criticisms a lot of people have had of China and its COVID policy is that If only they would use those better vaccines, couldn't they get out of zero COVID? But what Ben is saying is that actually the Chinese vaccines are good enough if there is a comprehensive vaccination campaign. If they do the full round of vaccines and boosters, it could work. But then the follow-up question for me and actually for a bunch of our listeners is why hasn't China pushed vaccination like all the other countries did? Why can't they just go around and say, everyone, get vaccinated? What are we missing here? You're right. And, you know, sitting here in Beijing, one of the big frustrations this year is how there hasn't been a vaccination campaign. All of that money spent on testing, testing huts on every sort of street corner, all these pop-up hospitals being built, 
But I had my last Chinese vaccine in, I think, January of this year. That's really typical. You can't get a Chinese vaccine at the moment. In fact, European diplomats here in Beijing have told me that they went to the best, most modern production site for Chinese COVID vaccines a few days ago, and it was idle. It's not even making vaccine doses right now. So they're not even placing the orders to get ready. And that is just a really weird thing to do. Some listeners have some really good questions about why the elderly so resistant to taking these vaccines. And that was also true in Hong Kong and I, I guess in Taiwan too. So part of it, uh, you can tell me about Taiwan, Alice. Part of it is that some people are keener on traditional Chinese medicine. They're not sure about whether Western vaccines are good for older people's bodies. And then again, the propaganda machine here couldn't resist all these stories about every single side effect that you could get from taking the Pfizer's and Moderna's in America because they wanted to make America look bad. And now that has come back and bitten them because people are scared of the vaccines. And so I do think that China, in terms of preparing for the exit, has completely wasted the whole of this year. Yeah. And and I do wonder if part of it is also that if zero COVID is effective, then essentially you're not exposed to the virus. You know, whenever there is just a handful of cases anywhere, you know, everyone's getting quarantined. So you do, there's this sense of complacency, I think, that has spread in China in in the sense of people feel like, okay, it's never going to come for me. So why do I need to take a risk? And I, I do wonder if now that the virus is spreading and case numbers are rising, will that change the willingness among the elderly or among their children, you know, to really push them and say, you know what, now we are going to get exposed. We can see that the National Health Commission has announced a new plan to push elderly vaccinations. Taisin, which is a local Chinese media outlet, reported that, you know, there have been work targets issued to local governments and they need to make sure, you know, 90 percent of people above 80 get vaccinated and boosted by January 2023. So I, I wonder if we are just about to see, you know, a serious push now. My rule of thumb is if I don't understand why the government is doing something that looks like it's hurting itself, it's because I have not understood the incentives of the officials sitting behind the desk. And I think that this has been one of the stories of the pandemic is that if you're like the mayor of some town in China, you're told by the central government, keep the economy ticking along. Don't let any cases take off. If you have infections, we'll fire you. And by the way, it'd be good if old people got vaccinated. And so as any good Chinese official does, you work out which one of these contradictory orders can hurt me. And the one you do here is you'll get fired if there are cases. So you build fences, you lock people in. And so I think the big, big, big question is these new targets that you mentioned that do seem to be set, will they make it compulsory? Will there be a vaccine mandate? And in fact, when Beijing tried hinting at a vaccine mandate this summer, there was such a backlash. You remember, Alice, you know, day two, they scrapped it. So Really interesting example. The Communist Party is willing to use unbelievable force if it's crushing a student protester. But if it's taking on kind of indignant grannies, they pick their battles. And that's not a battle they've wanted to pick. So the other thing that we mentioned earlier, you know, that China needs to do if they want to move out of zero COVID is to really build up their hospital capacity and specifically their intensive care capacity. And we saw in mid-November that the National Health Commission said, you know, 10 percent of hospital beds need to become ICU beds. David, can you tell me, first of all, just, you know, what is the state of China's medical system? How prepared are they and how much more preparation do they need to do? I mean, they'd need to do a ton. And the problem is they should have started many, many years ago. One of the really extraordinary things about China is just how little money is spent on health and how bad the system is. And that's choices, right? You know, China is big on building aircraft carriers and sending spaceships to the moon and 
staging two Olympic Games. But, you know, one of the statistics I always find totally mind-boggling is 42% of all doctors in China don't even have a university degree. We're not talking like medical degree. We're talking any bachelor's degree. So this is how weak the system is. They have a very small number of ICU beds, intensive care beds. And this matters because if you do modeling and you work out what the death numbers could be, if you haven't vaccinated and you still have really weak hospitals, it looks grim. So The Economist, our data colleagues, have done a model, which is in a briefing that I helped write this week, that shows that if China manages to raise its vaccination rates, then you could have a safe exit. But if you don't have better vaccination rates and a better hospital system, you could see nearly 700,000 people dying from COVID. If you're interested in learning more about that modeling or reading David's briefing or any of the extensive coverage we have on the protests, on zero COVID, on everything that's happening in China, you should subscribe to The Economist. And you can do that by going to economist.com slash drum offer where you will get a special rate. So we at DrumTap, we don't have a data team. We don't do modeling, but we do want your voice messages and your emails telling us what interests you, questions you want, because they are so useful for us as we plan our coverage and we try and make sure that we're telling you what you want to know about China. So please keep sending in those voice messages, those emails to drum at economist.com. And while you're at it, we want to know what listeners to all the Economist podcasts like about what we're now making. So please help us by filling out a short questionnaire at economist.com slash drum survey. It'll only take you a few minutes. And the link is also in the notes for this episode. Thank you. We'll be back in a moment to talk about what happens next. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to Drum Tower, where David and I have been discussing zero covid how we got here, and how this policy turned from a triumph into a trap. We were just discussing how in order to get out of zero COVID, China has to make all these preparations. It has to reach certain vaccination rates, needs to ramp up its capacity of ICU beds in the hospitals. And yet it looks like China is now moving towards loosening up without first achieving those prerequisites. How do we understand this? Alice, you're right. The thing we think we know about the Communist Party of China is that they are all about control and they are all about stability, and they are all about avoiding chaos. And yet this path that they're taking is triggering at least confusion for now. And potentially, if we start seeing desperate families with sick people overwhelming hospitals in cities around China, they're going to have the chaos that we saw in everywhere else that had a huge wave of infections. You know, The other thing that we think we know about China is that the guy at the top has to be right. And the guy at the top, Xi Jinping, this was his policy. He was the commander-in-chief of the People's War on COVID. His signature policy that was his proof that discipline and grit and Communist Party leadership was saving lives 
when selfish, decadent Western democracies couldn't save them. That policy is now kind of starting to crumble, if not fall apart around our eyes. Something I've been thinking about a lot is whether there are alternative explanations for why China is loosening its restrictions now. We talked about how a lot of people have seen, wow, there are these extreme political protests. Maybe Xi Jinping is scared because, you know, the students went to the streets and they, they raised the papers and, you know, now the policy is changing. But I've been wondering, are there other explanations? For example, could it be that case numbers are rising at such a quick pace that the people at the top are just realizing they can't hide that and they can't control that? Could it be that it's COVID, not protesters, who are pushing the Chinese government to change? I think there's a lot to that. I think that we should certainly be really cautious of imagining that the political protests that we saw in Beijing and Shanghai are somehow frightening the party. I mean, I was out on the streets of Beijing during the protests here, and the police were absolutely in charge of it. They were kind of icily confident and have been rounding up lots of people involved in those protests since then. Those protests were the most political end of a nationwide wave of exhaustion and exasperation, including a lot of people who choose not to think about politics at all, but because they are fed up, because the economy is in such bad shape. You know, those worker protests you mentioned at the beginning in cities like Guangzhou, I think those in some ways are much more powerful and local governments going bust. And so now as we try and work out how to understand this moment, because it is so contradictory with all of the messaging from the Communist Party for nearly three years has changed in the last few days. I've got a kind of frame in my head. How do you know if we're still with zero COVID? Are they still sort of tweaking zero COVID? Uh, or have they really abandoned it? So one really handy marker, I think, is zero COVID was never just like America's policy, but stricter. It was a very different thing. It was to take every positive case and isolate them. And that was just like a hugely ambitious thing to do. If you're going to do that still, you need to have mass testing, and you need to have huge quarantine sites, those big warehouses full of beds. At the moment, the mass testing is kind of not quite abandoned, but being half abandoned. And if they do much more of that, then they're not going to find the positive cases. And that can't be zero COVID. The other really confusing thing for the outside world is China's going to go dark. You know, we're not actually going to know what their case numbers really look like because we've had this very unusual transparency where because their whole system was based on tracing every outbreak, they were being very unusually transparent about a public health crisis in real time, which is very unlike the Chinese Communist Party to be transparent about anything. They could now go dark. So we may be about to lose any sense of how bad this epidemic is, and even how many people are dying, because China plays with death statistics all the time. You know, things like seasonal flu are not recorded on death certificates in China. They'll record anything else. You can dive at anything else. So they can hide some amount of COVID deaths or a lot of COVID deaths if they need to. One reason why I'm skeptical of this idea that it's the protests that changed Xi Jinping's mind is because we've seen so much protest actually throughout zero COVID in China. You know, not the type of political protests on the scale that we saw last week, but, you know, during the Shanghai lockdown, we had people crying out, you know, leaning out of their buildings, making these videos of desperation. And we had the angry people, you know, shouting at their neighborhood workers. We had everything. It's hard for me to believe that it's that there were protests, but, but maybe it is that China has finally reached a point where the scale has tipped, where in the past, even though people were protesting, we saw people shifting, right, in their fears. So in the beginning of zero COVID, people were in China were afraid of COVID. Everyone was afraid of this deadly disease. And then as these 
terrible lockdowns happened, people who lived through them gradually shifted from fear of the disease to fear of lockdown and fear of the quarantine camps and fear of being separated from their children or you know their father not being able to go to the hospital. And I wonder if we have now reached the tipping point where from the government's point of view, there are more people afraid of that, of the COVID controls than there are of COVID. And we've reached a tipping point where the economic costs, the costs of the workers not able to work, of companies slowing down, basically where the costs for the government also have begun to outweigh the benefits. I absolutely agree. We should think of this as a giant utilitarian experiment. It's literally a kind of numbers game, right? As long as most people were leading relatively normal lives, which was true for a lot of the pandemic, then if some cities were locked down, we in the outside world were shocked by the scenes from Shanghai that you absolutely rightly kind of pointed to. But the truth was, if you were the communist leadership, that was a city of 25 million people. And yes, they were kind of super plugged in, affluent, worldly people with their own kind of social media accounts. So we all saw it. But actually, this 1.4 billion people, and so 25 million people in Shanghai is just a smaller number. And I think that that numbers game has gone the wrong way because this COVID variant is so contagious that the gaps between the locked down places have just shrunk. Those kind of oases of normality have shrunk so much that the total number of people having a miserable time and not sure that it's worthwhile because they see the numbers rising, that it's just gone against them. A utilitarian experiment doing the greatest good for the greatest number, that goes wrong when the majority turns on you. And so I think that it's the protests that we see are the tip of a kind of iceberg. And it's the size of the kind of the overwhelming frustration that really worries them. So, David, I mean, there are some people out there who are watching what's happening who would say, oh, you know, look at this. This is whole process democracy. You know, China is responding to what people want. What do you make of that? And what is the mood on the ground? Are people feeling grateful and happy and feeling like, wow, the government listens to us? You're absolutely right that that is a line you hear. And, you know, I've spoken to Chinese scholars and people in finance who say things like, well, you know, it doesn't matter if the propaganda completely contradicts what it said the week before about how dangerous COVID is and now it's completely mild because the Chinese people are only really about the results. They don't care about the propaganda being consistent. I think that's too cynical. And I think it's missing two things. One is some of those very brave young people out on the protests where I was in Beijing, some of the people you've seen in other cities, they've all been called into police stations. They've been threatened. Their parents have been threatened. Some of them are still locked up. Some of them are going to lose their careers over that brief moment of protest. And the other thing is, I think it's dangerous to assume, at least in the short term, that everyone in China is going to be grateful for zero COVID going away, because quite a lot of them are going to say, well, hang on, if it's so mild, and if we didn't need to lock down, why did I lose my business? Or if it's so mild and we didn't need to lock down, I live in Shanghai. Why did I spend two months locked in my apartment eating rotten vegetables? And so I think at least in the short term, there is going to be continued anger because here's the thing. The Chinese Communist Party doesn't get elected. It doesn't have kind of democracy. So it claims performance legitimacy. It's all about being the best at governing, the best at keeping people safe. Well, performance legitimacy is a bet on performance. And right now, having wasted the whole of this year and now galloping towards an exit that they have not prepared properly, it doesn't look like amazing governing performance. It reminds me of this image I saw going viral online of a Dabai, you know, COVID worker in a white hazmat suit. And on the back of its suit, it said, the show is over, you know, and it's kind of like this ironic feeling for people who have been suffering so much, suddenly seeing things stop. And then it's kind of just speaking the unsaid, right? And everyone just thinks, 
right, we've all just been acting in this show. You know, now we're admitting that it was just a show and so much of it was pointless. And the other problem is that the Communist Party may know the show is over. The people of China may be realizing the show is over, but there's one actor in this drama that doesn't know the show is over, and that's the virus, because it's still looking for bodies. And there's a lot of bodies out there that it's ready to infect. The scary thing is that even if the party has now decided the calculation doesn't make sense and it's time to shift, they haven't made all the preparations necessary to make that shift, right? They're being pushed by the people, by the virus, by the economy. They suddenly have to shift. And now we see they're scrambling. They're like, okay, let's do the vaccination. Let's do it by January. And I guess the big question is, can they do it fast enough? Can they roll out all those preparations fast enough? They've wasted all this time. Because if they don't do it fast enough, we will see an exit wave of deaths. And we will see scenes like we saw in Wuhan back in 2020 and in Hong Kong earlier this year. And we don't want to see that. Like, no, no one wants to see that. And I guess the other scary thing is that we might not know how bad it is, right? If these deaths start to happen, they might cover them up. They might report them as deaths for other causes. It will be hard for us to keep track. You're right. And one thing that is going to be very unpredictable that we on the ground here in China are going to be watching over the next few weeks is is it actually not a kind of nationwide movement of opening? Is there real variation? You know, if the city panics, if you see smartphone videos that the sensors can't delete in time showing hospitals being overwhelmed with desperate families, if there's that kind of chaos, could they slam the brakes back on again? Could they start locking down again? Could individual places kind of disobey instructions to open? So I think this could be very, very messy. And the only thing I can promise is that those of us still here on the ground in China are going to try our best to work out what is going on and to bring it to you. And I have no doubt we're going to be doing another episode uh, on this and hopefully not talking about mass deaths, maybe talking about how China has pulled off something different from everywhere else in the world. Or maybe talking about how we're still stuck in zero COVID after all. So this is a scientific story, but it's also a human story. And we'll keep you updated on everything that happens next. We're going to keep bringing you those voices uh, from the ground in China. So thank you for listening. And we will have more Drum Tower next week. This episode was edited by Sandra Schmully. She produced it with Barkley Bram, Poppy Seabag Montefiore, and Pete Naughton. Our sound engineer is Wei Dong Lin. Music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. Our executive producer is John Shields. <laughs>